One of the most helpful things I've learned over the last few years was the idea that not everything that Christianity teaches and Jesus demonstrated with his life is rejected by the world. The world actually appreciates a lot of what Jesus had to say and do. Um, so the basic concern, such as, or sorry, so as, such as the basic concerns that God has for the world he created, um, the concern he has for the people of these earth, two very broad categories, but nonetheless two impulses that God has clearly shown us in Scripture, and crucially for what I want to show you, are two concerns that a lot of people outside of the church share. Um, maybe that sounds a bit strange to you, but it was a big realization for me. I had a strict delineation between those of us inside the church and outside the church for many years. So to find common cause with people who aren't Christians was, um, was a good thing to realize. And maybe not all of them, maybe not always, but so, and certainly not for the same reasons, but we do share some common stuff, goals, with people outside. So what I'm saying is in rock and science, people who don't share our faith often share some of our beliefs. Here, though, is my point. They don't share all of them. They never do. And currently in our society, one doctrine that is loved, uh, and, and although even this has taken a battering in some quarters, is the idea that God is love and loves us without any conditions. That never gets old. If some people you know, don't, don't think that God exists, so even talking to them about God is love is pointless to them. But nonetheless, nearly everyone will agree with this. I remember a story that has stuck with me um, over the years. It's more of an image. Sometimes in the middle of a story, you just get this image and it sticks with you. I don't know if that, that happens to me anyway. But this, this is a story of a street preacher that another street preacher, a friend of mine, told me of how one day uh, this guy was preaching, he was a Frenchman, and he was preaching on the uh, underground, not on the actual train, but on the underground in Paris. Now, this lad had converted as an adult, and his kids had grown up by the time he was converted. And as he was preaching, unbeknownst to him, his daughter was watching him and listening to him. And how he found out that she was there was that she wrote him a letter uh, sometime afterwards, and she told him that she had heard him preaching. And she said, basically, in her letter, that she disagreed with his concept of God. And that actually God was a God of love, and the condemnation of sin that he included in his preaching was not congruent with the God that she knew, right? And, like, you know, I heard this story secondhand, so I don't know what either of them looked like, but I, I often think of this young woman. And I imagine her there standing up against the wall in the, you know, the tunnels that are in many underground stations all over the world, watching her father quietly and taking it all in, but disagreeing with her, with him. Because if I could categorize the people on this island who don't believe in Jesus' claims, I would split them into two camps. There are those who are hostile to us, and that's growing. But there's also those who are very friendly to us. And that's a categorization I believe that the Bible is okay and follows, by the way. And I would put this lady into the category of the friendly person. And yet, even though she is friendly to us, at the same time, she is an eternity away. Because she is right, God is loving. But God, 
he, God is a loving God. But two things are true in response to that. Firstly, God's also a God of justice. His love is in no way unconditional. Nothing gets unaccounted for. I was even reminded this week that Jesus himself says idle words, idle words uh, will be accounted for. And secondly, though he does love us, his love has a sharp edge. It's, it's a purifying love. It's more purifying than the sideways glance of a thousand wives. I, 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 didn't even, I don't remember saying that, but uh, obviously I wrote it. Uh, you know what I mean, right? You know when you get the look, you're like, okay, I did something wrong. The section that we're looking at tonight um, is a living parable of both of these sides to God's characteristics. Sorry, I'm just going to change, push that out. Let's look at it. In chapter 7, I'll give you a little kind of a review of the... the uh, we're mostly going to look at, at chapter 9. But in chapter 7, if you want to look at it, we hear the story of how God kept his word to Gideon and used him to save the people from the Midianites. It's quite a well-known story, a favorite, I'm told, of the Sunday school curriculum. But it goes like this. Gideon gathers this army of 32,000 men, and God tells him, that's too big, and he tells him to send home anyone who's afraid. And it turns out 22,000 of them are shivering and scared, so they go home. 10,000 then are behind, and God says, that's still too big. So he whittles Gideon's army down to 300 men with the very famous way of picking those who lap the river water like dogs and those who use their hands, he sends the rest of them home. Anyway, uh, only then, when this huge army has been reduced to a small band, does God give the victory to Gideon. And the point is, the big lesson here in our one of the big lessons is fairly straightforward. We're reminded that salvation is brought about by God's work, not ours. Gideon will know as he left the battlefield, this victory wasn't mine, it was the Lord's. My part was only to trust and obey. We don't need to be strong for God to use us. In fact, any strength that we think we might have, any resources we find ourselves trusting in, are likely to rule out God using us to bring about his salvation. God is a jealous God. He wants the glory himself that's due to him. He won't share it with us or anyone else. And it would appear that we need to learn the lesson that Gideon has learned because uh, Paul himself, many centuries later, said one of my favorite verses, actually. He says, um, God said to him, sorry, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Gideon's uh, story there is an example of that. An important lesson to learn. And you'd think that's all we need to hear from Gideon, right? Because that's kind of the high point in his life. But it seems his life has harder lessons to teach us as well, because in chapter 8, things take a turn for the worse. Without going into a whole heap of detail, Gideon forgets the lesson of the last chapter almost immediately. In fact, I'm inclined to say, really, what we see here is that he only understood what he had learned at a surface level. Because what we read next in the story Gideon gets up to is he, he, he's chasing the rest of the, the remaining Midianite king, kings that are still alive. And in the story, we see that he interacts with three different groups of Israelites. Two of them are just the people in small towns, and, and he bullies them, 
and threatens to kill them for their disrespect of him. And in fact, with the larger group, or with one of them, he comes back and he does kill them. And then the third group is a larger group. It's a whole tribe of Ephraimites. And they also disrespect them. But instead of, you know, standing up to them like he did to the two small guys, he kind of kowtows to them and he says nice things to them. So he, he, he comes across as a bit of a coward and he's a bully and a murderer. And it gets worse, however, because he finally catches up with his enemy. And at that point in the story, we find out that these guys had actually killed his own brothers, thus laying bare his real motive for chasing them, not out of obedience to God, in other words. And then, to cap it all off, in a fit of cruelty, he asks his own young son to kill them. And as his family was dishonored, he wants his young son to regain it, and the son is actually trembling with fear and can't do it, so Gideon does it himself. But in the end, chapter 8 shows us that Gideon had forgotten the lesson that God had taught him. It shows us a man who is riven with serious flaws, who commits murder and lives in acts according to a life system where his own personal honor is central, except when he's liable to die. Chapter 7 teaches us that it's all about God and his glory, but whatever Gideon might say, that's not what he lived out of. This attitude then sets us up nicely for what comes to fruition in the story of his son, Abimelech. But before we get to his son, I need to hear here about his la- Gideon's last actions, or at least the last actions that are recorded in the Bible. And what it says is this. After the last of the Midianites was killed, the Israelites come up to him and they say, we want to make a king. Now, that's somewhat understandable, right? He had led them to victory, and they reckon he is the man for them. But, 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 God has not sanctioned this. They weren't supposed to have a king. They were supposed to follow God without a king, and that was supposed to be enough. And, of course, it wasn't. They can't, you know, the whole, we know the whole story of judges. We're probably sick of it, but no. They continually went away from God and followed other gods and did evil. But in response, God never gave them a king. In response, God raised up judges as he saw fit. And what the Israelites wanted was to choose their own leader, one who would have to then pass on that rights to one of his own sons. So to ask for a king here undermines both his commands and his ways. Do you see that? Not only should they have not wanted a king, but the fact they didn't even bother to trust in God to look after them and trust in God's method of ruling them and try to install Gideon as their king. That's like, you know, strike two against them. However, in what is probably, it is the high point of Gideon's life, um, in an almost perfect response, he puts a stop to this, and he says, verse 23, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, that actually is the high point in Gideon's life, But unfortunately, that's where the good stuff ends. It's all downhill from there. And again, I suppose a very simple point is to make that just because a man says the right thing or or says the right thing does not mean that the rest of his life is worthy of imitation. Anyway, no sooner does he say these words of disavowal towards the idea of kingship does he do a number of things that only kings do. So he says, no, I don't want to be king. But then he acts completely different. 
Firstly, he has a heap of wives. Like, we don't know how many. It doesn't actually say how many wives he has, but he has 70 sons, so I'm assuming he's going to have more than one wife, right? And he had at least one concubine. Um, and then his son, Abimelech, who we're going to look at, his name means my father the king. I mean, you, you know, you can't get more obvious than that as revealing his, what his heart is like. But probably, actually, the most telling of all is that he demands tribute from the Israelites. In other words, in, he exercises the prerogative of rulers all over the planet. He taxes them. And from the gold that he receives from the Israelites, he fashions um, what's called an ephod. Now, ephods, these are garments that the priests wore, only the high priest, I should add. So they were very highly symbolic to the Israelite religion. And it would be kind of like, there's no real comparison, but the best I could come up with, it it would be kind of like if if you were to go into Christoph or myself's house, right, and at the head of the table where we sat down, there was an exact copy of the moderator's chair from the General Assembly, you know, something like that. I mean, it's, it's it's a poor example, but you know where I'm going with it. All of these acts are basically attempts by Gideon to move the center of political and religious power away from where it was and center it on him and his dwelling place. And sure enough, as has happened many times before in Judges, a power source other than Yahweh, their own God, the only God, it proves too much for the weak-willed Israelites, and they actually end up worshipping this ephod that Gideon had created. Thus ends the life of Gideon. Here's the thing, right, though, about this man. What I'm about to say, I think that that lady standing in the other ground, underground, she would like this. Because this speaks to God's love for his people, no matter what. You see, Gideon is a man who did and said only one right thing in his life. The entire rest of his life, from what I can see in this story that we're told about, is marked by greed, idolatry, fear, doubt, Pride, revenge, murder, and just a veneer of shallowness. And yet this is a guy who was called the hero of the faith in Hebrews. At times, preachers go to David and his failings, or Moses and his failings. But surely, surely Gideon is one of the best examples of a sin-defiled person who was chosen by God to do God's work. Is this not a great example of grace? God enters in and sustains his relationship with this man, makes him the judge for, is it 20, I can't remember, 20 years or something like that. He's got, but he has so many flaws. I mean, he's riven with flaws. He's, he's one of the more flawed characters in the Bible. How can we doubt God's presence in our lives when we are faced with our own failings if God does this with Gideon? No, we like that, right? I like that. That's encouraging. It's encouraging to my friend in the underground. But what I would suspect make our friend in the underground uncomfortable at least is this story of Abimelech. See, I decided to get Christoph to read it out loud because, well, he actually said this already. Because I'm doing an overview, but I had a feeling not many people knew about the story. Hands up here, anyone who had ever heard about Abimelech. Don't be shy. Anyone? One... One, two, three, four, five, six. 
All right. Less than 50%. Um, I knew that I'd read it before, but I must have completely forgotten it because it was, it was all new to me. I'd never, I was like, I'd never seen this before. But I know I've read Judges, so anyway. I'm going to assume it was new to some of you, as, uh, uh, to you as well, and it was. So this story, anyway, of Gideon's son is really an outworking, or one way of categorizing it, it's an outworking of all the sins of Gideon coming home to roost. All of the badness that we see in Gideon, we see in Abimelech as well. Except in Abimelech, it's given free reign to flourish. Whereas Gideon rejected the kinship in name, but acted like a king, Abimelech had no such qualms and actively goes after it. And in fact, he becomes king. Israel, first king, and it's a complete disaster. Gideon murders the people of a town (coughs) and pulls down their tower. Abimelech kills the people of a town by burning them in their tower. Gideon's action tempted the people to, to false worship, but still held to the pretense of following Yahweh. Abimelech had no pretense of following God in any shape whatsoever. In fact, this entire chapter, God's name is not mentioned except in the, the generic sense. Gideon murdered to protect his honor. Abimelech was so proud that in his dying minutes, he preferred to be run through with a sword so that he could avoid, by a mere technicality, the shame of being killed by a woman. There's no shame in being killed by a woman, but you know, he was that proud, right? The apple, in this case, not only fell close to the tree, but it sprung up overnight, devoured the old apple tree, and grew up into a forest of briars and thorns. This guy, he's he's a low point in the history of Israel. One of many, unfortunately. But anyway, what did they do? Well, you've heard the story. I was going to say briefly, but it took about ten minutes to read it. But I'll say some things with the same notes, some notes. Abimelech's journey into, into Israeli history is like this. All of the other leaders in Judges are called by God, but Abimelech uses machinations that would put your man on the house of cards. I don't know what he's in it. That, you know that program, House of the Political Thing? It put him to shame. He goes, basically what he does is he goes back to his mother's area. He wasn't born there. He goes back to Sheshem, where his mother is from, and he says to them, listen, wouldn't you rather have one man over you rather than 70? Gideon had 70 sons. And that also, by the way, means that the 70 sons had assumed some control, thus indicating again that Gideon had instituted some kind of dynasty control over Israel, just as a king would. But anyway, he goes back to the 70, or goes back to Sheshem, and he says, wouldn't you rather have just one guy rule over you rather than 70? And look, you know, I'm from around here. Wouldn't it be better if you just had one lad, and that one lad only was in control, and that lad was me, who you know, kind of. So they say yes. They give him some money from the coffers of a local false god temple, and then he hires a few local heavies, and with them he does his first truly awful thing, which, is, which sets the tone for the rest of his time, and that is he murders his 70 half-brothers. He does it all in one stone, too. Right, so he must have captured them. You know, there's a little bit of like one of those ISIS videos. He captures them all, he brings everyone around, and he, he turns it into a spectacle. However, one of them, Jotham, Jotham escape, escapes. And he goes up the mountain, and he yeah, kind of prophesies. He tells the story. 
And the story is, it's ridiculous. It's a story where a tree chooses the worst possible kind of tree. And in fact, he's not even a tree. You know, briars or thorn bushes, they're not trees. To be their king. The briar king. And of course, he's talking about Abimelech. And before he leaves, he gives them this cleverly worded curse. He says, if you've been fair to Gideon's family in making Abimelech king, and let's face it, you haven't, then you may find great blessing in him. But if you haven't, and let's face it, that's the reality of the situation, then may fire come out of him and burn you, and may fire come out of you and burn him. Which is exactly what happens. The Sheshemites have already proven themselves willing to change sides. So when this gal fella comes along, they, they don't need much persuasion. Abimelech is loyal to himself, and fiercely so. So he fights this gal fella, conquers and kills the people of Sheshem, and even goes to the point of destroying the town by salting the ground. And eventually, as we have said, he's killed by a woman. The curse of Jotham has proven true. So, what can we say about this fella? What encouraging things, if anything, can we take from it? Well, actually, in two verses, the narrator explains to us what's happening. Well, four verses, but two sections. There's firstly in verse 23 and 24. Just want to take a look at it. We are told that God sent an evil spirit. Yes, God can control the demons. I'd love to spend some time on that, but it's a bit off topic. And basically, though, God sends this spirit to stir up trouble between Abimelech and the Sheshemites because of what happened to the 70 brothers. God's not happy. He doesn't like this. And then at the very end of the whole thing that Christoph read out, verses 56 and 57, the narrator reiterates the same thing. All of this had happened to be, all of this had to happen as an act of justice against Abimelech and the Sheshemites because of what they did. God is a God of justice. Things cannot be let pass in his scheme. Now, if you and me, as we are, I hope all of us are, united to him, then many sins can be overlooked. Your Savior will take your punishment. But if you are not, justice will be served upon you. This is the clear picture of Scripture of the God that we serve. And according to this story, we can see, I think anyway, three principles of God's justice at work here. Firstly, no statute of limitations on God's justice. Payment can be extracted at any time. Your man Jotun goes up the mountain and he speaks his story and his curse. But the fulfillment of it didn't come for three years. But came it did. Secondly, God's justice can be unseen or comes unseen. I mean, who would have known that God had sent an evil spirit to start things up? In our own day, we don't have a divinely inspired narrator who can glimpse behind the curtain of Sky News or BBC News and tell us what's going on in the spiritual world. Tell us the machinations of uh, the spiritual world. We don't know what's going on there, but something is going on there. Thirdly and lastly, 
It comes through the working out of human sin. I think this is actually the thing that caught me the most. Sheshem was a disloyal place. And it was its disloyalty that both got it into trouble and it's its disloyalty that got it destroyed. And likewise, Abimelech was a bloodthirsty, proud man. He had no need to attack the very last town. I don't know if you picked that up, but the place called Tebes, where he attacks where the woman kills him at the very end, that wasn't one of the places that he was involved with at the start. It's just an, It played no part in the story, but he went there, and it was there that he was killed by a falling rock. Now our friend, my friend, it's not even my friend, this lady in the story that I heard in the Paris underground, she mightn't like this version of God, and yet there it is clearly portrayed in tonight's reading. What might we say to her? There are some good arguments to show that justice is a necessary characteristic of a good God. The most popular one is how could he let sin go unpunished? Should we expect to see, for example, an unrepentant Hitler in heaven? That doesn't sit well of anybody, does it? Does not the very existence of a moral impulse and a sense of justice within us point us to a creator who made these things in us? Of course it does. But there's more to say than these logical arguments. You see, I didn't get Christoph to read this out to you because we'd be here all night, but... But at the end of this story comes two very small stories of two seemingly unimportant judges, Tola and Jair. It's only about three or actually, Christoph could have read it. It's about six verses. But like the other judges, these guys say, or are told, that they raise up to save Israel. Unlike the other judges, though, they're not shown as rising up in response to people's call out for salvation or for help from God. And unlike the other judges, they're not shown as rising up to save them from anyone in particular. Why is that? Could it be that they don't even know who their enemy is? Could it be that they don't even know that they need saving and so they didn't call out? Of course it could be, because that is the situation that they found themselves in during the time and after of Abimelech. They were their own enemies. And he didn't even know it. But God in his mercy decided to save them. This is the positive side of judgment. It's actually a form of love for us. When God saves us, he not only saves us from his righteous anger at our sin, but he also saves us from ourselves. The wrong we do destroys both our relationship with God and ourselves. We are our own worst enemies. But we, thankfully, have a king, this is the end, who, unlike Abimelech, does not lead us into more and more trouble, but saves us from it. We have a king who, when he does judge us, does so for our own good, and not to pursue some selfish goal of his own. That's our king. And that's it. I, I will pray one second. Um, You know, I'm not 100% sure that I got fully into this one tonight. So, I'm going to pray this. Father, thank you for your word tonight.
We pray that you'd use what I've said for some good. We pray that you'd enlarge our vision of you as a loving God and you as a God of justice. Help us to see that what you do in the world is always good, even when it's hard to see that. Amen.